Empowering Independence podcast is a conversation about the RIA space hosted by Austin Philbin with friends and guests that include individuals spanning the entire spectrum of wealth management. A high energy, insightful creation. This show aims to demystify many of the myths of financial services and provide insights, fresh ideas, and a true look into what it takes to be a successful wealth management entrepreneur. Austin will ask the questions that need to be answered by any firm looking to drive scale, efficiency, and enterprise value. Hello and welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, and today we'll be entering the matrix with Ben Weishaupt, founder and CEO of Wishlife, and Mangit Eng, founder and CEO of Anvil. Fintech is a buzzword within the financial services and wealth management spaces. Thinking about the future intersections between technology and the delivery of financial advice is a really fun exercise. Silicon Valley has been a hub for innovation and design for many years. A tremendous amount of wealth has been created through startup ventures, and these ventures have created a whole new set of rules for the life cycle of businesses. We'll be talking about these topics and more on today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, and today I'm joined by two very, very special guests and friends, Ben Weishaupt, founder and CEO of Wishlife, and Mangit Ng, founder and CEO of Anvil Foundry, or just Anvil, located, uh, both companies located in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. Very excited to have both of you on the podcast. Thanks for joining, guys. Yeah, thank you, Austin. Thank, thanks to your audience. Great. Thank you. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So both of you uh, have had fairly extensive experience within the startup and technology space, and uh, you both <clears throat> have companies that have very close parallels or products that can you be utilized effectively within the wealth management universe? And so my first question to kick off our discussion, and we'll, we'll start with Ben. When, when you started Wishlife, what, what was the gap or what were some of the, the problems that you were looking to solve for with your company? Yeah, so... You know, it was really, it was started, um, the DNA of Wish Life was started for my own family, for my son. And um, there was a series of events in my life that happened, like many of us that, um, you know, we're pushed to reflect when there's moments, whether it's a birth or someone that we love leaves us and passes away. And so I went through a series of those events, and that was a catalyst for starting what has been really a journey of the heart and a mission of the heart to help families communicate better. So it started out of my own need. Um, my, my dad passed away at 57. He went in for a surgery. He unfortunately got an infection, didn't die from the surgery, but he died from the infection. My son was born very soon after that. And my dad and I were incredibly close. We were best friends. He was 20 when he had me. So we were more like friends than father and son. And I also sold a company um, at the time that I run, I founded and ran for 12 years. So it was that triangulation of events that forced me to kind of reflect, 
and I wanted my son to know who my dad was. Um, so I began journaling, and that evolved into videos and organizing these videos so that he would get a better understanding of my relationship, his values, um, his spiritual life, who he was, stories behind that, and all of the importance of his heritage. So that was the uh, initial catalyst for uh, beginning Wish Life. And like many of us, we all, all of us culturally, we have this need to tell stories and how we assimilate stories and share love with family. And so when we when we began this, and we you know we, we were thinking about this um, product, it didn't really start out. It started out more of a self need, and then I thought other people may need the same thing. And so we did a case study with 50 families, and 50 families with children and grandchildren all wanted to do the same thing. They wanted to capture their heritage. They wanted to be able to share their wishes and guidance, whether. Um, it was directly for a child or a grandchild. And so we saw this um, this real need, this real pain point. But, but Austin, the way that we ended up in financial services, as you know, um, I'm not from financial services. So um, while we were doing our research, we came upon this study by Allianz, BNY Mellon, and Merrill Lynch. And what the study says is that Emotional assets are six times greater than financial assets to family, and 86% of people would prefer to leave a non-monetary legacy versus financial wealth. Um, 86%. That was a huge number for us. So when we thought about, um, you know, my my own need and my co-founders' need, we realized that this was everybody had this need, and and that they wanted to tell their stories, they wanted to capture their journey, they wanted to to share their healthcare wishes and, and, and make sure that their family and their loved ones knew what they what they wanted. So, so that's how Wish Life was born. And we wanted to make sure that we captured the essence of the, of the person, of the family. And the way that we do that is through video. And so me setting up a video camera in my uh, living room and organizing those videos is how it began. But because of technology, and that's really where our strength comes in, because of technology, we're able to capture video through all of our devices that are out there today, mobile, web, <clears throat> and any other device to be able to upload. So that, it really was born out of my own need. Got it. And we're going to come back to the platform that you utilize in order to help capture those stories and make sure that multiple generations understand what's important around values, history, etc. But I want to turn turn the question over to you, Manga, and and talk about Anvil a little bit. And same question, what were the things that you saw out there based on your experience that led you to think there's a need for a company like ours? Yeah. Um, first of all, Ben, that was an excellent story. It's going to be a hard one to follow. I will say that. Um, <laughs> but for myself, uh, it was also born out of frustration. Um, I think I was going through a very common experience that people across America encounter. Uh, I was filling out a mortgage application and the process of filling out pages upon pages of information and then doing that again for the next mortgage broker was extremely tedious, um, not enjoyable. And for me, I, I 
I wondered why <clears throat> it was so difficult for me to just get the you know the latest in uh, the latest interest rate from a mortgage broker. Um, so that's when I really started thinking about how businesses today uh, request data, and then you know especially in service oriented businesses like wealth. Uh, how do you do something with that data from the client um, afterwards? And that's where Anvil was really born out of. Uh, Anvil, for us, is a platform that leverages modern online technologies to help, uh, whether it's advisors, banks, um, your school, your school-like parent-teacher organization, gather the information they need and then take that information and do something with it, whether that is complete a piece of paperwork or multiple pieces of paperwork, um, and then having that information um, flow directly into other systems that you may use, whether it's your CRM system or maybe at a maybe at a for a PTA, it's just a it's just a spreadsheet. So, you know, what we've really done with Anvil is examine the process today of how people do that. And we realize that a lot of this kind of work is done over PDF forms. Um, people, advisors, for example, hand out a form to a client, ask for some basic information, and then take that information and then fill out more PDF forms uh, to open accounts, let's say, or get an IMA signed. And, you know, these are great processes. They these are, if you think about it, they're technologies. Having this paperwork, um, it helps standardize information, make sure that all the information is captured. Uh, but there, it really leaves a lot to be desired. Um, you know, advisors and operational people are then copying this information manually, whether it's typing it into various systems or copying it onto other forms. And all of that, you know, is better done with computers. So. What we do is we capture that information digitally to start in a modern online web form, and then we just replicate all the information to where it needs to go, and really eliminating a lot of that tedious kind of work that currently happens at small businesses and makes the experience better for, for the clients that these businesses are working with. So both of you, in your own ways, are taking technology, utilizing technology effectively to create a better outcome for the end client of financial advisors. In the case of Wish Life, creating a platform that's able to touch upon a different level of the value chain outside of traditional investment management financial planning. And for Anvil, being able to take something that is administratively tedious and difficult and simplifying it and giving uh, individuals a better UI, better user interface, better user experience. Both of you are outside of the world of wealth management and financial services. What I've appreciated about our relationship uh, up until this point is you both, above and beyond just being really cool and being great friends, have been able to give me some insight into um, fintech or technology as, as a sector. But I would I would ask you what are some of the things that you've learned about wealth management or the financial services throughout our relationship and what are some things that you see as as a relative outsider to that industry 
that um, advisors or just individuals within the wealth management industry potentially could be doing better or thinking about in terms of that intersection between technology and the way that they service their clients? So why don't I, why don't I start with Ben uh, to think about that long winded question. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, not, not at all. Not at all. Um, so I, I think what I've learned, you know, not being in financial services, which, which, which blows me, you know, the industry's blown me away learning about it, you know, um, being a tech guy is that there's lots of folks trying to solve quantitative issues, um, out there and they are solving them, whether it's, you know, robo, um, advisors or online platforms. Um, but what, you know, there's this consciousness shift that's been wanting to take place for a long time from, you know, quantitative to qualitative. And there really hasn't been any tool sets out there that has, that have filled that void, um, that kind of new advice value stack that advisors are from a holistic planning, uh, um, standpoint are actually, they're, they're actually engaging with the clients over the phone or through paper, but there hasn't been a platform or a tool set, a qualitative tool set to complement existing quantitative tool sets. So I've learned about Orion and eMoney and, um, you know, lots of those existing quantitative platforms out there that are reporting, but there's a gap. And the gap is that the, the advisor is adding a lot of value. They are the family quarterback. They are, in some cases, a psychologist. Um, they, they're planning around the, 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 the whole family, and they're looking at, you know, the Henrys and the Millennials and bringing them in to learn about philanthropy and to learn about succession planning and saving and things like that. But there's no platform to actually capture, communicate, and engage from the client, um, that, that client-advisor relationship to bring that in deeper digitally. And so what I've learned is, is that although that consciousness shift has been wanting to take place, it hasn't really made that thrust to take place. That quant is still there. Um, so that, that's one of my, my, greater, my, my, my greater learnings. What was the second part of your question? No, I, I just want to stick with that because I think you bring up some really good points, which mm-hmm. as, as with any industry, things change. You know, when, when I started, and I don't claim to be somebody that's been in the industry for a great uh, number of years, but I've certainly witnessed it, it started with a financial consultant uh, prior to that, it started with a broker, a financial consultant, wealth manager, wealth advisor. And in each iteration of the name change given to the advisor, it represented a change away from a very transactional approach to a client, calling someone saying, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Smith, I want to sell you a municipal bond to today, the conversation, Mr. or Mrs. Smith, in addition to the things that I'm able to do from a investment standpoint, I also want to make sure that we truly understand the interplay between many variables in your financial life. And we want to make sure that you're able to give the ch- your children the things that you want to give them financially, that you have the resources to get them to the right college, and that you have the right resources for you to enact a retirement that matters. And even talking like that, it still harkens back to what you said. It's still a quantitative measure. It's still saying, if we save X money and we associate Y rate of return to it, 
and we take out taxes, et cetera, you're going to be able to have a Monte Carlo of 97% of achieving your goals. And all that's great and certainly something that's a lot more important and a lot more meaningful than buying something, but it doesn't do what you're talking about, which Mm -hmm. is at the end of the day, we're all human beings And they're those great memories, the memories that you have walking through the Presidio in San Francisco together, looking at the Golden Gate Bridge, that they're in our mind, but where else else do they go? And so what I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, what's so great about what you're talking about from the platform perspective and how it changes the game a little bit is you're now allowing advisors to provide a service to clients that would allow them to structure something so multiple generations can share those stories in a way that's done mm-hmm. digitally that can be consumed in multiple ways, whether it be an iPad, a phone, or a computer. So I think that I think that's yeah. an important point. I, and and the thing that I would just kind of share with you that what we've learned is that and the data is out there. I mean the. All the folks on the call today know that um, what the new advice value stack, there's lots of data. I mean, Bain has a great study, but fulfillment, accomplishing life's purpose, leaving a legacy, taking care of loved ones, um, more discretionary time, freedom from worry, peace of mind, and achieving goals. When we think of a pyramid and the pull, the pull from the client, what a client truly wants, leaving that legacy, accomplishing life purpose, it really is as important as the monetary aspect. So as an advisor connecting with the family, you know that those things are important, but how do you capture them? You're having these discussions. You're already having these holistic life planning discussions, but how do you capture them? How do you actually engage with the client through video to actually capture the essence of who they are, organizing that, communicating that, sharing that, helping the family communicate more thoughtfully together in one platform. And that's what Wish Life does. So you could think of it as, um, you know, it's, it's analogous to the quantitative in the sense that we're doing everything on emotional assets versus financial assets. We call these emotional assets. Leaving a legacy is so important. How did you come to be? How did you meet your wife? Um, what what is the story of the grandparents? And um, so so when we think of it from a holistic point of view, the platform enables the advisor to accomplish that alongside, and it sits alongside of all of these quantitative platforms that are out there, the eMoneys and the Orions, and it sits within their single user login. Got it. And Menge, you, you started your comments with, you know, a story that I think many people who are listening to this will will be comfortable with or will be familiar with just around how ridiculous it can be from time to time, whether it's signing and scanning PDF documents or entering the same information over and over and over again. <clears throat> so when, when you think about your company, you're also providing a value to advisors, which is there is a methodology that you can provide better client experience from the utilization of technology. And my one question to you, though, is as you're going through this process, some of the resistance may be, well, my clients aren't familiar with technology 
And I think there's a very easy way to overcome that. Like they don't feel comfortable putting information into a system. But I guess my question is to you, one, you know, the adoption of what you're doing from making data more accessible and making the ability to complete documents easier. Um, and then secondarily, how do you overcome any pushback from people that say my clients just aren't technologically inclined? Yeah, I think the first thing to note is most clients are probably more technologically inclined than we give them credit for. For sure. Um, and, you know, my, you know, my 60 year old, you know, parents in law are, are using iPads every day and they know how to use their iPhone. Right. So and that's what we really try to build upon is one. We we build user interfaces that are designed to be simple. Um, and when you compare it to, let's say, filling out a a static PDF form or paper form, um, the the common uh, the common scenario we find ourselves in is that you get a form to fill out, but there's an, another document that you have to read that is just as long. And it's just instructions on how to fill out that form. So that is a very complex kind of kind of interaction that a person filling that form needs to go through. Whereas with our system, we, we really try to boil it down to questions that a user can answer off the top of their head. Um, and the whole idea being the system will help them and guide them through to the next question. And it'll change depending on how they answered previous questions so that at any given point in time, <clears throat> the only decision that the person interacting with Anvil needs to, needs to make is, how do I provide this piece of information or what is the piece of information that needs to be provided? Um, so that's how we we kind of, I would say, address a lot of the usability issues. Um, and then within, within businesses, they have internal processes. And the way that Anvil is built, what we've done is we've created the Lego blocks for any person to come in and kind of um, recreate their process online. So, you know, if you're a small business, if you're an advisor and your process is to send out a client profile questionnaire and then you get that information back and then you use the information to fill out a investment advisory agreement and then you send the investment advisory agreement out, what Anvil does is we can replicate that process digitally. And then we, t but what we do is we capture the information um, because it is digital, we eliminate all of the manual tasks of moving the information from the client profile questionnaire onto the investment agreement. Uh, so with Anvil, the adoption and the understanding of how the process works, it is the, the, the barrier is lowered because it is the same process. What we've done is just remove the manual and tedious steps of moving information around when, when going through the workflows. You know, it's an interesting concept that you're both talking about that always it doesn't shock me I guess surprise would be the right way to look at it is when we have our clients and they leave traditional financial institutions they start their own practice they become entrepreneurs you know for me personally and and I know this is probably difficult but I would take myself out of the business so try to hover above the business and evaluate what are the things that we've done in the past and what are the things that we should be doing in the future in order to have our business run more efficiently 
or to be able to provide a better experience for our clients. But what often happens for me, which I I've, again find is surprising, is most of them want to get back to a steady state. They want to have the administrative uh, assistant or the uh, the CIO of the the firm do the exact same task in the exact same way that they're doing, just using other paperwork. Or they want to continue to offer the same type of financial planning services, maybe with a different output from a report standpoint, versus taking a step back and saying, you know what would be cool? What if we were able to have a better client experience through using technology and maybe we could expand our service offering to have a more meaningful relationship by using tools that are available out there. So my question to both of you is, as you've become, as you continue to become ingrained within the financial services world all across the spectrum, what are the things that you try to do to convince people that there may be a different and perhaps better way of the processes or the deliverables that they've had uh, historically for their clients? So let's start with you, Ben. Well, I think the industry realizes that leading with value-based planning um, is, you know, that that that's out there. And, you know, leading with heart and soul versus just a quantitative transactional relationship, growing the capital, um, you know, obviously uh, people are very, that's very important to people. But, um, you know, for us, we've been, we've been very fortunate, Austin, in that, the the platform as a whole, these are things that advisors, conversations that advisors are already having with their clients. It's just how do you ca- capture those conversations worth keeping um, and and how do they sit within your existing ecosystem when you either onboard a client or you're communicating with the family um, and the heirs of the family. So from our side, it's it's really just more about education. Uh, more than than convincing, so Got to speak. It. Yep. How about you, Mangit? Yeah. So when we speak to advisors, oftentimes it comes down to what do advisors really want to be doing in their in their day to day. You know, uh, advisors they are like we've mentioned many times on this on this podcast. Uh, they are oftentimes a quarterback of the family, and to really be a good quarterback to really provide good, solid advice, you need to understand the business. You need to be working with the client and having those relationships. Um, and by doing paperwork, doing administrative work, it almost distracts from that that time that you can spend with your clients. And also probably doesn't do any favors for the relationship. It's not a fun experience for, for anybody involved. So what we try to do is explain or or talk about how Anvil can really free up a lot of that time that is currently spent on administrative tasks that could be spent on uh, better understanding your client, getting to know their various situations or their their future plans, um, and really giving them back that time, giving the advisors back that time so they can then spend it on building those relationships. So that's that's kind of our value proposition is really what do advisors want to do and what do they get into the business of financial advising um, originally? What was the reason and how can we help them do more of that? Got it. So we'll take a step back and 
think about your own businesses outside of the the connectivity to wealth management, but just as as standalone entities? And I'll start with you, Ben, because you've you've successfully started and exited uh, several businesses, and a lot of the advisors that we work with, our clients at, at Dynasty, they're they're entrepreneurs for the first time, so they're thinking about. Um, managing people, creating culture. My question to you is, how have you done this? How both of you done this at your companies? And from your perspective, whether it be the current company or any previous companies, how important is this to the overall success of the business? Um, well, I, I would say that, you know, in my experience um, and the folks that are um, first-time entrepreneurs, I mean, it's, it's, this is really about the journey. Um, being an entrepreneur is about the journey and you kind of know when you get to the destination and you feel like, okay, well, I've, I've completed my journey and then it's not fun anymore. Um, and, and, you know, you all happen to be in an industry where you're helping families on a daily basis. And regardless of why you got into the industry, what the intention was, um, you're helping families. And I think that's what matters most is you're helping families. In my journeys, uh, culture, chemistry, and mission have always been at the forefront of anything that um, I began, um, I've been involved with, whether I was, I was an angel investor or um, starting a company, the culture, um, how you create an environment where you work with people that you love, um, the chemistry with those people on a daily basis, because a lot of times you're, you're spending more time with your peers and your co-founders than you are with your own family. So you got to really love what you do and love the, love the people um, that you're, you're working with and that you have a common mission, whatever it is, whether you're designing a semiconductor part or whether you're helping families, the most important is that you, you're, you're aligned in mind and heart from what I've experienced in, in, um, in starting and selling three prior companies. Yeah, I love the fact that you use the word journey. And I really should give this person credit because I, I, I use this quote often, but I don't know exactly who it was that said it. It was a video from something that I was watching on YouTube. And this individual, he stated that each day at a startup company is a tragedy. It's just a question as to whether or not the tragedy of the day is something that, that could end the company. And so the, the view of a journey is something that it's, it's longer in tenor, so it's not going to happen overnight. And it also could imply from time to time that they're going to be challenged to overcome. But it's thinking about the, the long game while at the same time being able to focus on the day-to-day -day details that really matter, the prioritization of things that will help to push the company forward. And one of the unique moments that I've had working at Dynasty is the time where, for some reason, I was walking down the street and I was like, you know, what we do is we are a relatively new company. So we've been around for about a decade. But for many instances, when I was working, it was like a startup company working with, you know, 50 or so other startup companies. So the assumption that every day is going to be this pleasant journey where you're out on a picnic having great sandwiches and the winds rest, it, that's just not a reality. And I don't think that could be a reality for anyone that's starting a company. But what makes, to your point, Ben, what makes life so much easier 
is if you work within a culture of people that you really care about and you want to overcome the challenges that happen on a day-to-day basis. So that, that whole, that whole thinking about a journey, I, I really like. How, how about you, um, Mangit? You're, you've obviously been a part of some larger companies, and now you've got your, your current company that you're doing a great job. How important to you is, is culture and finding the right partners in order to be successful? It's, it's extremely important. Um, when we started our company, both my co-founder and I, um, you know, we, we made it our mission to really try to create the place that we've always wanted to work at. I think, you know, both of us have gone through, uh, various stages of companies. I, I've worked at a few startups that were three people, seven people. Um, and then I was at, at Dropbox when it went from, 400 people to 1200 people in the span of a year, you know, a year and a half. And so having been through those experiences, you kind of see where, where businesses start to fail. And I don't mean it in kind of the product that they're selling isn't working or people don't enjoy using the things that they're selling. It's, it's more of internal, internal failures where if there isn't a a strong culture, a, a cohesion that is that, an understanding amongst all of the people at the company, the, the it, it quickly turns into um, a lot of resentment within the company, resentment at leadership, resentment in other teams, and it just becomes a toxic kind of environment to work in. And so I and I've seen businesses when they start scaling, you know, where the edges start crumbling, but oftentimes you kind of that's when the the company's culture really shines and. Um, you can see the how how you hold the kind of the team together. So you know that that was something that was very important to us when we started the company. Something that we thought a lot about, and the way we go about building company culture or uh, promoting this kind of cohesion is, you know, we, we start by obviously like any other business, we start by hiring extremely capable and extremely driven people, um, and then. What we do further is we, we we give them a lot of responsibility and a lot of trust. You know, we our company we actually uh, we have company mandated work from home days two days a week, and one of those days is a Friday. So if there wasn't that level of trust, you know, a lot of people you'd probably be looking over your shoulder and thinking, can I just take this Friday off and take a long weekend, right? Um, but we know that when we hired our team and um, look for the type of person that we're looking for. We know that everybody is driven to try to build something bigger, um, put together, you know, I would say we want to hire team members that when they're added to the team, you know, the, 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 the sum is definitely greater than their parts. Um, so, you know, I think for us, it really comes down to trust, Uh, hiring the right people, the right mentality, especially at this early stage of the company, um, and then giving everybody a a lot of responsibility and, you know, holding them accountable to it. I I, I love those those additional comments of how you actually take the steps to build a culture, because oftentimes in these discussions, people emphasize, rightly so, including myself, that culture is incredibly important to 
the long-term viability and success of any organization. And then it stops there and the conversation doesn't go further into, well, what do you actually do as an entrepreneur, as a CEO of a company to try to create a positive culture? And so in listening to you, things like responsibility, uh, identifying the right hires, uh, trusting them to do the right things, all incredibly good insight and things that I think people should think about as to how they create their own culture. What about you, Ben? What are what are actual tangible steps that you try to take in building the, the culture within your companies? I mean, I think early on identifying folks that are like-minded um, is kind of the first step for me, um, you know, People that, you know, wish like being, for example, being a, you know, kind of a very driven by the heart, um, very mission driven. So, you know, we're, we're social um, in the sense that, you know, helping families um, communicate more thoughtfully, capturing the things that matter most to them, their legacy. And so people that have had uh, or have a like mind is very important. And then once they, you know, we kind of get the train on the tracks and they begin working, we, you know, we spend a lot of time together in the office. I mean, uh, culturally, um, you know, Silicon Valley kind of uh, startups have different ways of, of doing things, whether it's, you know, events or um, hanging out in the office playing darts. But I think as a whole, um, it's, it's really starting at the root level, which is being able to, um, find like-minded people, and then um, it kind of organically happens. The ideas, um, you know, the the, the same thinking um, to where you're not, like, really trying to mold or you're trying to shape someone. Um, so I think that that's, that's – it's very important from day one um, to make sure that those folks are like-minded and really know what, what you're shooting for. And also that they're willing to, particularly in uh, early stage companies, they're willing to, you know, be able to be flexible and nimble and grind. Um, so looking for that that profile of person. There's all the standard things that you know we do. We have company lunches and we we hang out a lot. We do events at um, each other's houses, um, you know, hikes, things like that. But I think at the end of the day, it's really that that first. Um, that first life cycle in, in, in meeting people to see it always goes back to see if, if the if, if the minds are minds and heart are aligned culturally. Austin. Yeah. Oh yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say if Take I could it. offer a, a slightly differing opinion. Um uh Ben, I think I've I, I totally agree with you on a lot of those points, but I think for from our perspective, this time around when we were hiring, we focused a lot on actually hiring people that were not necessarily like-minded in the sense that, I guess they were like-minded in the sense that we were all driven and we want this company to succeed and we think there's a good value proposition here and what we're doing. Um, but I think the one thing I really looked for when hiring was people that are have differing opinions and are willing to challenge um, not only me, but my co-founder, other members of the team in a respectful manner. And I think that really is part of that trust that we we try to instill is that, hey, you know, your opinion's valued here. You should bring it up. And, you know, at some point, um, 
either I or somebody else is going to have to make a decision, but we want to hear your opinion and have that create a culture where you're you're able to voice it. And I and I particularly want to hear a differing opinion. Um, I think that really helps mold a lot of the the decision making because if we if we don't see the opposite side of it. Um, it's harder to really evaluate if your opinion or your approach is correct. So that's one thing we've we've actually focused a lot on is hiring people with very um, diverse kind of backgrounds and 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 thinking and opinions and beliefs, um, which you know I think has worked out pretty well for us. Um, and then it's funny we I, I've been in the startups where we spend a lot of time together, and you know those are some of my best experiences and um, some of the, my, you know, my favorite memories. Um, but in this company, it's, it's interesting because we, we've actually very, been very deliberate about uh, almost constraining the hours that we work, but the hours that we do work, we are extremely, extremely productive. We, we pretty much have no meetings. Um, and then giving people the, the flexibility to, to really do the things that they need to do, whether it is a personal errands or picking up kids, um, giving them the, the the flexibility to do that and trusting that they will make up that time or make up uh, whatever progress they would have made during that time um, in other parts of the day. So um, I think it, for us, it really all comes back down to, to trust and then giving people responsibility and then letting them do, um, be themselves and figure out uh, how they can both handle the responsibility um, and, and, you know, trust others to handle their responsibilities as well. I think probably, you know, the, the question from the, from my side was probably a little bit less um, precise rather than the, the point I, I, for me, the, the cultural, the cultural aspect is being able to, I think we would all agree that culturally you do need people that understand the goal and the mission of the company and that are able to do the things necessary and required in order to uh, fulfill those goals and, and objectives of the company. But you bring up a really important point, Mangit, that I think would be an interesting to talk about a little bit. I mean, I, I've seen, formerly I, I worked at large uh, financial institutions, two of the largest in the world at the time, and hierarchies were were very apparent, meaning that it was it was very clear, you know, which individuals were making and and dictating the decision making process, and that there were things that you could and could not say within those hierarchies if you wanted to continue on in meaningful employment. And what's been interesting to me in, in looking at Dynasty and other startup companies is that the hierarchies. They, they don't they don't necessarily exist I mean there certainly are some to some extent but then how do you create to your point a culture where it's okay to disagree on a certain point and it's okay to create a pathway for a conversation around disagreement and then ultimately you have to find a way in which a senior, you know, someone within the company that does have more responsibility is able to make a decision and the other members of the team are okay accepting it. Because I think that's a big thing with culture is, yes, I want people to be able to feel comfortable to provide their own point of view. But in the same sense, once we've talked through things, and I always say, I think we've beaten this up uh, enough, 
because I was, you know, my old MMA background. <laughs> we're we're moving on. Like, how how do you do that effectively? H- how about you, Ben? H- how do you create a culture or create a, a a place where people are free to provide insight in in their opinions? But ultimately, at the end of the day, there has to be a mechanism by which a decision is made, and oftentimes, someone in a senior capacity has to step in and, and make that decision. Yeah, I mean, I think that you've. If you don't create that culture, unless you have, you know, your company's just roaring like an Amazon, um, you know, if you don't, you're going to fail. So I think transparency, honesty, trust, all those things are kind of like in my in in, in my playbook are givens. Like if you don't have that in your culture, right? And it's at an early stage, I think you're going to be you're going to be challenged. People are going to be suppressed. Um, and, you know, leading in a kind of democratic environment. But, you know, at some point, if someone just has to make the call when there's, you know, lots of people, uh, you know, maybe disagreeing or challenging each other, and then you've got to make, someone's got to make a decision. I mean, that's where it comes, that's where, you know, either a board comes in. Um, But, to your question, how do you create that culture and how do you create that? I think you just have to on a daily basis um, during strategy sessions, during um, customer meetings that you, you know, you're make everything transparent. Um, Keep an open book, keep an open mind. Um, You know, as Mangit said, um, you know, leading, leading and being an example of that, in your meetings um, and being able to trust your um, all of your employees that they're going to do uh, the right thing. I mean, here at Wish Life, we do, I would say um, we spend a lot, you know, we're, we're 80 hour work weeks uh, and I'm not saying, you know, being productive um, in 80 hours, you get a lot done and, um, and, and, and really being open, I think is the main thing to hearing others listening versus, you know, talking is, is very important. I think healthy disagreements are great because great outcomes, you know, uh, particularly um, business model engineering, great outcomes. Um, and, and, and there's been examples of that, right? Like, uh, you know, Steve Ballmer, Bill Gates, you know, used to throw things at each other in, um, in, in, in board meetings, right? right. And, and strategy sessions and, and, you know, look at Microsoft today. Um, you know, so I, I, I agree with Mangit in, in that, you know, that the, uh, being challenged by employees, regardless of their level, whether it's a beginning engineer or one of the, one of your peers at an, at an executive level that you always have to listen and you've got to lead with a, um, you know, almost like a cooperative, a cooperative type environment. Um, at least that's how that's how I've been successful in the ways that um, our companies have gone in the past. So yeah, I mean, in knowing both of you, it's definitely apparent in the way in which you interact with the individuals within your companies and the way in which they they want to work incredibly hard for both of you. And, and I think that's that's important, right? You want to you want to have leaders within companies. You want to be a leader within a company that is empathetic, that is open to ideas, but ultimately at the end of the day is able to make the right decision, even if it's not the popular one. And that's extremely hard. And I think that's one of the things that 
some of the the advisors, the new entrepreneurs, uh, particularly within our ecosystem, may struggle with a little bit because now they're not only leading the direction of the business, they're the client relationship managers. A lot of them are primary sources of revenue for the company, but then they also have to understand what what they've asked their employees to do, which is to join them on this journey and trust that they're going to deliver them a career path, trust them that they're going to deliver to them, you know, financial well-being. And, and that's a lot for someone to take on. It's a completely different relationship than when they're interacting within the confines of a traditional financial institution. So we're going to switch gears. We're going to get, uh, I'm going to ask you both same question. When you think about the future, both of your companies and then also of uh, the industry, even for yourself, what are you most excited about? So why don't we start with Mangit? Yeah, I had a whole list of buzzwords written down for for this conversation um, between blockchain, AI, and flying cars. You know, so um, but I think the 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 aspect that I'm really most excited about. And I know Ben touched on this a lot as well. And I think it's kind of been a theme of our conversation today is this this shift towards a more human economy. Um, you know, I think the past uh, past couple decades has really been about um, building better machines, doing more automation. Um, and this is exemplified by by robo-advisors in the wealth space, by high-frequency trading, by um, automated robots in the manufacturing space. You know, it's all been about how do we create more pro- productivity out of the same kind of employment, um, employee resource pool, right? The same for more GDP for for our nation. And I think now. I've noticed a lot of people kind of stepping away from that and being like, well, we're so productive, we can actually take time to do things that we enjoy, um, whether that, you know, whether that involves using my phone or not, you know, a lot of people actually turn off their phones today, and then do things that are um, deliberately offline, deliberately slower. And, and then kind of the, the, the whole economy that shift or or the whole economy that's going to result of that, you know. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day that talked about how board games are going through a renaissance. You know, in this day and age, you wouldn't think board games would be <laughs> be the the item that goes through a renaissance, but it really speaks to the the experiential aspect of it, the human connection aspect of it, the the relationships you build when playing a board game with your friends over, um, you know, over a dinner table, that's, that's what I'm really excited about. And, um, even in my own self, I feel that when, when I have access to all this information, um, and I can get access to all this information at, on my computer, sometimes I just want somebody to tell me what to do or how to do it, or have a trusted person that I can bounce ideas off of. And, I think there's a real opportunity there to build kind of new business models and how how we kind of provide these services to 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 other people. Like it. And and you you mentioned that that human connection that you know oftentimes with technology and so much reliance upon the the mobile phone goes away. 
And to me, you know, and turning it over to Ben about what you're excited about, you know, what I what I'm personally excited about your company, Ben, is is it brings back that aspect of the relationship into financial services. It brings back and puts a further emphasis around human connectivity. And that that's mm-hmm. something that, you know, for a lot of advisors, coming back to the point that I that I made about both of your companies, which, you know, I, I really think there's a there's a ton of opportunity, which is forcing people to think about things differently. Like it's okay to have a conversation with your clients about the values that they wish to place on their money when making an irrevocable gift to a trust. I think some people like cringe when they hear that and like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Like I, I'm not skilled in that or I'm not, I'm not. And then there are others that naturally do that effectively. So, you know, <laughs> with that as a segue and a long one, you know, what are you most excited about for, for wish life for yourself in the future? Yeah. And I really, I really like um, what you're both saying and Mangit, um, you know, shared in, in terms of humanizing technology. I think that, you know, I've got a, I've got an 11-year-old who, um, you know, are, as everyone knows on the call, anyone that has children that are young, I mean, they're they're they may not even learn how to drive um, because of self-driving cars, which is kind of sad. Um, you know, I, I I learned in a Volkswagen Bug and a stick shift. You know, my aunt taught me and almost got whiplash. And it's those <laughs> moments that, you know, those moments that we go through in life. Um, where we're just using our instincts and our body and our mind um, that are, are really important in terms of development. And I think technology has brought us further away from what it was meant to do, what the World Wide Web was meant to do, which was bring everybody closer. It's, in many ways, it's bringing us further away because of stimulation. And we're, um, we're being pulled further away from our families in many ways. And so being able to, what I love and what I'm really excited about is seeing tools to help humanize technology, right? So technology that is out there that exists, that's being created, that brings people closer together um, is, is what I'm, I'm most excited about. I'm not saying that, I'm, that I don't think some of the really amazing things that are going on in cars and AI and, and um, information is unbelievable, but I do think that the tools, the thing that excites me most is tools that actually are bringing people closer together, not with ephemeral content, but with deep-rooted content that connects us all, um, whether it's, you know, again, making a mortgage application much easier or helping us connect with the next generation through video. So that's what excites me. Great. I really appreciate both of you taking the time to, to be on the podcast. Uh, as you both know, I, I think very highly of the both of you and your companies. I'm really lucky to have learned a lot about fintech technology. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that you know, I, I am very, I'm very grateful that, that we have the opportunity to spend some time together just having a conversation and hopefully uh, the people that are listening uh, appreciate that as well. So thanks to you both, and I, I hope you have a great day. Yeah, thanks, thank you. Thanks, Austin, for having us, and and thanks to everyone out there who's taking a little bit of time to listen listen to our story. We're very, very, <laughs> very grateful and appreciative. 
uh, thank you. Thank you very much. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was really my pleasure to be on this show and having this conversation is always, it's always fun to, to talk more about it with other people. Cool. A special thanks to everybody for listening to today's episode. And thank you to Ben and Mangit for participating. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And to all you listeners, please stay tuned as we will be sending out another podcast in the near future.